0: Recovery Elevator, episode 334. You're not giving something up. You're getting so much more in return. It's just amazing.
1: welcome to the recovery elevator podcast my name is paul churchill thank you so much for joining us on today's podcast we've got kevin he's 53 years old from south carolina and took his last drink on october sixth, two 2019 and heads up listeners kevin's interview is with chris and you guys are going to love chris's style he's a grounded laid-back guy from north dakota who fully gets the importance of connection. And just like you all gave me a chance and Odette, please focus on the similarities and not the differences and welcome Chris. Speaking of Chris, him and I, we've made 10 YouTube videos together and some of them are pretty funny, at least in my opinion. Our last video was my top 10 favorite recovery books. Go over to YouTube and type recovery elevator in the search bar. I just finished the book Breath by James Nestor. The breath is the true foundation for all recovery work. It turns out 5.5 breaths per minute is the optimal rate. That's the sweet spot. That's 5.5 seconds on the inhale, 5.5 seconds on the exhale for a total of, you guessed it, 5.5 per minute. So the next time you're caught up in email apnea, pause and focus on the breath. I highly recommend reading this book um, and the link is in the show notes. Thank you, Liz. Uh, and real quick, why did Adele cross the road? Why? To say hello from the other side (laughs) all right let's get started so today i want to talk to you about the incredible feature film on trauma and addiction by dr gabor mate the film is called the wisdom of trauma this film needed to be made and will definitely move the needle in a healthy direction in terms of how we view addiction. A link to this movie and my favorite book by Dr. Gabor Mate, which is in the realm of Hungry Ghosts, can be found in the show notes. Thank you, Liz. This film covers what an addiction is. It covers how it happens when the driving forces behind an addiction take hold in life. And it also has practical ideas on how we should address addiction as a society and as the individual struggling with an addiction. And on this podcast, you're most likely listening to address a drinking problem, an addiction to alcohol, but all addictions for the most part are interchangeable and the mechanisms behind them are mostly the same. Okay, no surprises here. He talks about trauma and he is noted for saying that all addictions start with trauma and the bulk of that happens in adolescence. The start of the addiction doesn't happen when you lose your job, but in infancy, always. We often think that trauma has to happen in Afghanistan or a physically abusive parent, but it also happens when we aren't hugged enough as a child or us not getting something we needed when we were young. And parents in the 20th and 21st centuries are pulled in so many directions that unfortunately this is common in adolescence for many kiddos. Um, And unfortunately, it's these kids that pay the price real quick, please don't take any of this energy or information and steer it towards your parents. They did their best. That's not a healthy way to take this information. Um, I also want to mention this is an emotional film. If you decide to watch it, I I cried during parts of it, uh, many parts of it. (laughs) Let's go with that. So he says that trauma happens when you disconnect with yourself, when you don't have anyone to talk with, when kids are alone with their hurt. Another way to say this is there wasn't a healthy way to move the energy, it got stuck. So humans talking about it or talking about things that are discomforting is the equivalent of a duck flapping its wings in nature. And we weren't able to do that as a child. So the body hangs on to the energy, but it's not fun energy to hang on to. In the Western world, one of the dominant ways this excess energy manifests itself is through inflammation in the body. And sometimes it's visible on people. He then talks about how we look at an addiction as simply being a poor choice. And we meaning society and the individual. Uh, thank you, Reagan, for adding a couple thick layers of pinion pine to the stigma tree with a just say no campaign from the 80s. That didn't help much at all. So doctor Gaber then reframes it by saying the addiction wasn't a poor choice. In fact, it was the solution. Sounds strange, but I completely agree. In fact i'd take it even further to say kudos to you you found a way to survive now it's time to find a healthier way to cope with alcohol since it will definitely mess you up spiritually mentally and physically in the long run without a doubt so please do not beat yourself up for having a drinking problem you found a way to survive and now it's time to find healthier ways to connect that's all we're doing here i like how gabor calls out capitalism in most modern economies is fueling addictions. We are primed to feel we need to purchase something external for short-term inner wholeness. And this temporarily works, but for long-term wholeness, this process has to be replicated hundreds, thousands of times. And so this is great for the stock market, but not good for mental health. And there's one word to summarize all of this. It's called more. We are always looking for more. And this is a major pickle in modern societies that we have to address ASAP. He talks about how this addiction is destroying the earth. And listeners, we don't have to fix the earth, fix climate change or global warming. We have to fix ourselves and at the individual level. Planet Earth, she's going to be just fine when we're gone. So our current way of living, which Eckhart Tolle calls insane, is how we are conditioned. It's, It's fucked. It's crazy, and it's not sustainable. The good news is this paradigm is shifting, and you guys are all part of it. He talks about the insanity of how we're treating stress and addictions with more stress. Most Western illnesses are treated with steroids or more cortisol creams. It's not curing or treating anything. He talks about the two ways society treats or views addicts. The first one, and this is outdated, thankfully, it's it's starting to fade away, is, is that addiction is a choice. You know, just say no, and if you do say yes, you were warned with catchy commercials. And then the user is punished. This is the penal system at the macro, intense shame and guilt at the inner micro level. The second way we view addiction as a society is that it's a disease and not a choice. So he feels this is a better approach since people can then get treatment uh, like any other disease, which is great. But this approach completely ignores why people get addicted in the first place, which has nothing to do with a disease. Uh, Quick side note, and Dr. Gaber Mate is clear on his stance about if a drinking problem is a passed down genetic disease that runs in the family. He says, no, it is not. He believes these are adaptive behaviors, that addictions are learned and formed to survive in an environment that isn't conducive to wholeness or happiness. Now, that's, that's a lot to unpack right there. Um, feel free to hit the pause button and, and sit with that one if you'd like. And I'm on board with this approach. In fact, I've switched my tune while doing the Recovery Elevator podcast. Some of you may have listened to this and heard it. At first, I'd say the first 100 episodes or so, I thought an addiction was passed down. It was a genetic disorder. Um, and In fact, uh, scientists have yet to find the addiction gene. I don't think they will. Um, But now I feel these behaviors are coping mechanisms that allow us to survive in environments that are full of static. Car alarms, incorrect passwords, identity theft, violence, backstabbing, sexual abuse, spam phone calls, and, and more. We can stop that list right now. And we all have to deal with this incoherent energy. And I do believe this inharmonious energy is passed down generationally and that we all have to deal with it, not just the addicts in fact in most native cultures when one person in a community was sick the whole community came forth to help the whole community would even brunt the financial costs because they knew a sick person within a community was not an outlier but a representation that something was out of balance within the community and today in modern society we've got a lot of sick people we do with depression being the number one cause of disability worldwide so Dr. Gabermate says that in the USA, the richest country in the world, half of its citizens have chronic illnesses such as high blood pressure, diabetes, addictions, etc. Another way to say this is we've got big houses, but we're totally disconnected. So how do we treat this? And Dr. Gabermate Mate says the modern medical paradigm separates the mind from the body and separates the person from the environment. I think you would agree That we need to use the mind to come into the body and not leave it or disassociate with it. So listeners, next time you have an intense pang of anxiety or emotional discomfort, don't exit that mentally. What I mean is don't use your mind to think of a way to leave the situation. Do your best for at least a second or two or three. Go into it, right? Go into the body and scan. Feel it. Try to locate that discomfort. So the first thing we have to do is recognize there is an imbalance. (laughs) Surprise, surprise. That's the first step in all 12-step programs. But science proves this. We have to have a consciousness, us, to recognize that something is out of balance within us. So there is no right or wrong way to address an addiction. But what I've learned here at RE is that community has to be a component of this. A huge component. Another way to address this And we've all heard the the phrase from famous psychologist, Carl Jung, what you resist persists is at the individual level, we have to recognize that something is out of balance. And again, that's the first step, right? We have to recognize that, uh uh-oh, hey, Pablo, we got to deal with something here and then go into it. Take your mental energies and go into it. And at the group level, we have to do the same, but this at the group level can be a lot of fun. So I want to mention guys at the individual level, you're doing it right now. You're listening, which means you're open to a whole new way of life, a whole new way of living, a whole different perspective. And this is what gets me excited about Recovery Elevator in the near future and in the long-term future. It's exploring new ways to live that don't require alcohol for wholeness or, or just to exist. And guys, again, we are all figuring this out together. Again, the film is The Wisdom of Trauma. You can find a link in the show notes. Thank you, Liz. Thanks for listening, guys. It's really good to be back with you all. And before we hear from Chris and Kevin, let's hear from BetterHelp.
2: I want to tell you about our sponsor for this episode, BetterHelp. Mental health matters, and as we continue to live through this pandemic and slowly go back to resuming activities, such as going back to work or attending some social gatherings, it's important to have someone that can help us process all of our emotions and life stressors. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. BetterHelp provides a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. This platform is super easy to navigate. You can log into your account at any time and interact with your counselor by sending them a message. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus, you can schedule weekly or video phone sessions. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. I highly encourage you to check it out. Visit www.betterhelp.com elevator. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P, and join the over a million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. This podcast episode is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Recovery Elevator listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com forward slash elevator.
3: Hey, Paul, thank you so much. And Recovery Elevator, please give a warm welcome to Kevin. Kevin, how you doing, dude? I'm doing great, Chris. Uh, Nice to be with you today. Thank you so much for for making the time for us, and I'm excited to uh, I'm excited to chat with you. Can you remind me of how long you've been sober?
0: Well, I believe it is about 630 some odd days at this point. I'd have to check my phone, but yeah, you know, in October it'll be two years. Yeah, full steam ahead.
3: October will be two years, man. You're creeping up on it, and that's that's gonna be here before, before you freaking know it. Nice job, dude. How's it feel? It
0: feels great. Uh, it really does. It's uh, you know, uh, I was just thinking about it the last couple of days leading up to you and I talking today, and it's been quite a journey. I'd love to say that you know every day is a great day and a happy day, but they're not. But I, I do know I am much much better equipped these days to handle you know what what life is throwing at me. So. It's a it's a really good kind of a liberating feeling to know that I don't need that that crutch all the time. I love it, man.
3: So can you give listeners a little background about yourself, uh, where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, family, and most importantly, Kevin, what do you do for fun?
0: All right. Yeah, I'm 53. The first 50 years or so of my life, I lived up in the Uh, metropolitan New York City area, mainly Long Island. Almost three years ago, I moved down here to Bluffton, South Carolina. It's about 15 minutes or so away from Hilton Head. I own a food wholesale company. Let's see, I have two wonderful sons, uh, 21 and 19. Currently, I am not married, uh, although I have an awesome girlfriend. And uh, yeah, I have two dogs. I have two dogs named Ben and Jerry.
3: You know you know that I love, as a fan of ice cream, that I love those dog yeah. bands. Yep. Well, we had
0: been, I had been for a long time. And I, I always said, if I got a second dog, it had to be Jerry. So we changed her name. And yeah, for fun, I would definitely say I, I just, I love to read. I, I read everything uh, I can get my hands on. I love to spend as much time outdoors as I can. Probably one I don't normally hear is I love to work. Unfortunately, some of my free time does get spent with work and, and the business, but I, I do genuinely uh, enjoy what I do most of the time, I should say. So yeah, so I don't have a ton of free time, but I do enjoy it.
3: Well, that's good. I think it makes a huge difference if you if you enjoy what you're doing. Probably makes it a little bit easier to, to spend that time doing it. All right, Kevin, let's get started. Uh, let's get into the meat and potatoes of this. I'd love to start with how you got here. What was your relationship like with alcohol and how did that evolve over time?
0: Yeah, it definitely um, had a a, a, a lifespan. Uh, we went through a, a lot. I mean, you know, started early, eighth, ninth grade. I don't think too uncommon with uh, with kids my age, just kind of experimenting in, in mom and dad's house. You know, I grew up in a city and probably in fourth grade, I think it was fourth grade, we moved out to Long Island, which was like, uh, the area we lived in was a pretty kind of a blue-collar community. And, you know, over the years that I, I was there, I made a lot of friends, and but I never quite fit in, in my mind anyway. And and that's why, you know, starting 8th, ninth grade, drinking with some friends in order to fit in, and that kind of just went right through high school. It was, this was probably late 80s. I graduated high school in 86. So, you know, right around 10th, 11th, 12th grade, Just drinking heavily, Uh, not frequently, really, but just the times you would drink on weekends. It was a lot, you know, and at the time I didn't really think it was a problem because pretty much everyone I was hanging out with was doing the same exact thing. You know, so time went on. I, I went to college and college was basically just a continuation of high school. A lot of binge drinking on the weekends. You know, when you're in college, any excuse that you can think of to drink, you would. It was a snowstorm, you drank. If it was nice out, you went out and you know hiked and drank. And you know, and and so that that was through college. But the whole time, I, I, you know, I just kind of thought it was normal. I really did, Uh, even though it was definitely having a negative impact on on what I was trying to accomplish.
3: When you started out, Kevin, was there? You know, you, you mentioned like eighth, ninth grade starting and just doing that sort of to fit in. With kids in your neighborhood, did you ever have any consequences from those from those early years, or did your family ever notice? Was was it ever brought up or discussed, or is just kind of like part of life? Something that happened.
0: Yeah, my I was the my parents are and, and thankfully still alive, but they they were always pretty strict and consequences not really bad consequences, other than the fact that my parents knew I was drinking, and I I had the luxury of having an older brother that never drank. So so here here I roll in and, uh, you know, they're like sitting my brother down saying, you got to talk to your brother. He's got a real problem and all that. So I was like, definitely the project for him. But in terms of consequences, not really. Didn't really get into any trouble because of drinking per se. But, you know, looking back now, I probably could have been uh, a better student and stuff like that. After college, you know, Worked, and uh, I did get married. And when I got married, that was like 1996. And it def- definitely slowed down a little bit, that kind of, especially when the kids were first born. But then shortly thereafter, it was just, it was stressful. It was stressful as a dad, as a new dad, living on uh, on Long Island. It was, a, you know, it was a high rent district. So it was like, it definitely felt like I was in that rat race. But uh, certainly I felt like I was high functioning. You know, I owned my own business, we uh, had a nice house, we had a nice family and yet, you know, on the weekends, I was just, you know, drinking and, and drinking a lot. That all kind of, you know, manifested itself up to like 2009 when I got a DUI. So I know, you know, sometimes people talk about rock bottom moments and I wish that would have been my first and only one. <laughs> and I'm not laughing because it, it's obviously a serious, a serious thing. but. You know, I I had driven before when I shouldn't have many, many times, and this was just something where uh, I hit a parked car, uh, my car was not drivable, and, you know, spent the night in jail, got the next morning on my 13th wedding anniversary, my wife and and an attorney um, had to get me out of court, and like I said, that, that was the rock bottom for sure. I wish it would have been the one and only, but it wasn't, you know, so... Where I live, they take that stuff super seriously. I was very thankful I was able to avoid, you know, any further jail time. That did slow me down for
3: a while. You mentioned you had the, you know, you had the house, you had, you had your business. Do you feel like these things gave you a reason to believe that you, that you couldn't have a problem with alcohol? That I could or couldn't? That you couldn't. Um, right. You know, I, I think a lot of times those of us who are, are, are in that kind of high functioning state of mind or or what we perceive to be high functioning. Uh, I know that that was part of my story. I've, I've got this job. I do this in the community. I've got, you know, I've got, I check all these boxes. There's no way that, that I could have an issue. Like I was, I used those things to talk myself out of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, for
0: sure. I mean, I I would take a step back once in a while and really doubt that I had an issue because you know, I'm, I'm supporting the family. I'm on the little league board you know, I'm in the Lions Club, I'm doing all these charitable things. I'm like, you know, I'm a good dude. You know, I can't have a problem with alcohol. Deep down, I knew, I definitely knew I did. I knew that, you know, and everyone has a different definition of where their bottom is. But just that daily knowing that I wasn't living up to nearly what I could be doing, that was bad enough.
3: Yeah. And I I think that we... I think that a lot of us, I certainly did, perceive that that being a good dude and being someone who struggles with alcohol are mutually exclusive. Like, well, they can't be the same thing. When I just want to put this out there, this is my opinion as a non-professional. Those things can exist in the ta- in the same time space. Like, you can be a good dude and still struggle with alcohol. Hundred percent. I mean, and
0: and when I drank, and if I was drunk, I was a I was a great guy to be around. You know, I was certainly not someone that was angry. I didn't get in fights. I was a fun guy to hang out with. So that even makes it more so an issue when you start to think, well, do I have a problem? Because, you know, by that time, I'm in my 40s, had a great group of friends, great couples that we hang out with. But, you know, again, at three o'clock in the morning, you're laying there sweating and your heart's beating and you're saying to yourself, something's not right here something's, something's got to change. Yeah. Uh,
3: so walk us forward. That was, I think you said 2009 was, was the DUI, uh, walk us, walk us forward from that a little bit.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, kind of maintained the status quo at that point. And then around 2015, 16, I separated and, and subsequently divorced, uh, from my wife. She definitely deserved better. You know, I, I can't sit here and blame everything on alcohol. Cause that wouldn't probably be accurate but it definitely had an adverse you know effect on our relationship i mean we had been married almost 20 years and certainly the alcohol affected my ability to rebuild that marriage you know and and you know the good thing now i mean i am thankful we have a great relationship we we have our two boys which are doing well and um, i'm just very grateful for that but You know, the moderation stuff, when I was separated, that's when the drinking took on another level, the frequency especially. It became because I was spending a lot of time on my own, whether it was at home or, you know, I'm a single guy, where do I go to eat? Well, you know, I couldn't just eat, go to the, uh, you know, holistic market and get something, you know, healthy for myself. I had to go to, you know, the various sports bars and things like that. And that's when I noticed for sure that the frequency and almost the the type of drinking really escalated. And I noticed that it was definitely a numbing. You know, this was, I was in a lot of pain uh, from what had happened. There was a lot of guilt, a lot of shame, and the alcohol was just the salve that I was putting on that. Even though that salve would last about 20 minutes, and then the next day it was the same, it was just a, it was a bad cycle. And then that's when I really started to question what was going on, and, and I knew that there was a problem for sure.
3: I think those changes in behaviors when I went through treatment, we had to do this this whole chart of of making a list of every time whether our frequency or quantity or there there was some change in the culture of our of our usage going through. Like I didn't I didn't even realize it's so. I think when we're in it, it's so subtle. There can be a lot of different motivators that drive us to look back on that. But we can be in it for a long time before we even realize that well, this is this has taken a, a different form that's a little more, a little more maybe perverse, I don't know the right word, than than I would like it to be.
0: I agree because it, it definitely was very slight and it became a fact of, well, I'm drinking, I'm binge drinking, but everyone else is doing it. And then now it was just, wait a minute, I'm not out with everyone else. You know, I'm on my own, or I had two or three buddies that were my go-to guys. If it was a Tuesday night, you could find a hockey game or a baseball game that was on. And it was, I started gravitating towards those relationships. And that was just something I was very aware of. It didn't stop me from doing it because it was fun at the time, but, and and that ratcheted up the anxiety, you know, and and that would, if I'd have to put my finger on probably the worst part about it was the anxiety day in and day out, the, uh, the self-hate you know the rules i put into place only drink on the weekends only have beer only have wine you know every time i would be okay for a few days and you know i would make i'd break a rule and then make up three more and that type of stuff really made me start heading into you know reading up and you know the google searches of you know do i have a problem uh, with alcohol and for me you know checking off eight out of ten you know, I'd be like, Hey, but there's still
3: two, you know, room to grow There's,
0: Yeah. You know, there's, I haven't lost a job over this yet. So, you know, you know, and and Annie Grace's book, this naked mind was my first serious attempt at looking into stopping. Um, I got a lot out of that and I listened to her podcast and that was actually how I found out about recovery elevator because somebody on her podcast mentioned Paul. And then I Google Paul, and then I found Recovery Elevator. And uh, at that point, we're talking, that's 2017, 18. That's, uh, I, I listened to a podcast that Paul did. And of course, when you first start listening, you can't listen to one. You got to listen to three or four a day. I had to laugh because he ruined drinking for me. And I've met Paul a few times now. And I say that to him every time because I literally would listen to the podcast on the way to a brew pub. And I get that first IPA and I take a sip and I go, son of a gun. I said, I can't even enjoy this now because, you know, my, my, my awareness of what this is doing to me is, is like really at the front of my brain. Uh, It kind of ruined it for me. And I knew the end was near. I knew the end was near.
3: I think that is such a gift that that a lot of us have received. Whether it's from Recovery Elevator, This Naked Mind, any of the other Quit Litter podcasts out there, it doesn't feel like a gift as we're able to step back and, and if we're still drinking, we we can see it for what it is. But but I truly believe that that is a gift because you know, like you said, for a lot of us, that's that's the beginning of the end. We start to, you know, it opens our minds and we start to seek for okay. I, I can see what this is doing to me now. What the hell am I going to do about it? And then, and then we start, we can start to look for resources. What, you know, what is that? Is that 12-step fellowship? Is it online community? Is it, is it faith-based? You know, there's, there's all sorts of things, but yeah. So, okay. Paul ruins it for you as, as he tends to do. Yes, he does. (laughs) What what happens next?
0: Well, I, uh, you know, probably the last thing that kind of happened was I was driving home from a local craft brewery and I had only had a couple of beers. So it wasn't, I, I it was not a, a, a drunk driving type of thing, but, you know, I very rarely check my phone when I drive, uh, if I don't have my little Apple CarPlay thing. And I did that night and my truck kind of, you know, just went a little bit out of the lane, a foot or two, and it hit one of those vibrate the, the rumble strips. You know, your whole truck starts vibrating. Yeah. And, you know, I turned back in my lane. I put the phone down and that for me, I don't know what it was, but I just looked out on the road and I said, you know, I've got two great kids. I've got great friends. I've got a, a job I enjoy. I got people that love me. And look at what I'm doing. I'm making decisions here that could honestly mess everything up, that could jeopardize everything, let alone somebody else. And, and that was it. I mean, I, I think two days later, I, I took a trip up to New York. Um, I attended with some friends the, the same street festival, ironically, that 10 years before I had been at when I left and got a DUI. So it was the same. They hold this thing the first uh, Sunday in October every year. And what I was there. I had a beer or two. And I just, in the back of my mind, I wasn't stressing about it. I just knew that and I, and I kind of in my mind I said this would be an appropriate place to do this, you know. And I had one or two beers, and that was you know October sixth of two thousand nineteen, and that was it. And since then, no alcohol, and it's it's been quite the trip, quite a revelation.
3: That's a like a crazy full circle event for that to be your last drink,
0: and, and prior to that, Chris, don't make no mistake during that whole podcast time and there was day ones there was dozens and dozens of day ones and day threes and day sixes for me it was getting that first weekend out of the way Mm -hmm. where all of a sudden it flipped but i i I got up to five six days 30 times and then you know so i don't want people to think that it was like i just made that decision that
3: was like okay that's easy no not at all yeah there's there's all the work that and you know I don't think all those all those day ones all that work that we put in before what is God willing our 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 last day one all those as much pain as they caused those previous day ones day 5 resets day two resets whatever the case may be they're they're not for nothing mm-hmm. uh, it's it can be extremely painful while we're in it but but as as long as we have that willingness i think willingness is a huge thing that willingness to keep digging in and, and keep learning it's it's not for nothing as long as we st- were able to stand back up it's it's all growth yep 100 so what did the first the first 30 60 90 days look like after that october 6 2019
0: well i can tell you what the scale looked like the numbers on my scale started to increase you know i i figured giving up alcohol you know but You know, I was in contact a lot with Cafe RE and, you know, getting a lot of feedback from people that had just been where I was trying to go. And they just said, be kind to yourself. So I was, I took naps when I had to take naps. I was able to cut back my work schedule a little bit. And just if I didn't feel like doing something, I didn't do it. I wouldn't say I was white knuckling it, but to me, it was just don't drink, don't drink and don't drink. I I, you know, and, and and that's what it was like. I mean, the first 30 days, I was once I got past that first week, 10 days, it did not get easy, but the cravings per se were not there. For me, I craved situations more than the alcohol. So if it was, hey, you know, the Clemson game is on, or you know, college football or Super Bowl, those were the types of situations that made me a little bit, you know, leery. But it, it was good. I mean, I really, I had that willingness, what you just said, Chris, I had that willingness. I knew that if I screwed up that I was going to go right, you know, I was going to get right back and, and get back on track.
3: Kevin, you mentioned, you mentioned sports and athletics and, and those situations and events. And I know that there's a lot of people because that was, there's a lot of people out there wondering like, how do I do this? Because I was one of those people. Like, how am I, how do I get, through a barbecue, uh, a wedding, a lake day, a Super Bowl party, can you maybe share a, an experience or two of, of what that looked like for you, how how you prepared, how you went into it? When was it time to leave?
0: Yes, sure. Uh, in the beginning, I definitely cut down a bit on, on my engagements. Um, the neighborhood I live in, people are always saying, hey, you know, have people over, go to the backyard. I definitely did cut back on that a lot. I also set boundaries you know and i said to myself the minute i don't feel comfortable i'm just going to very respectfully leave and and i did that on some occasions when when the party would go from nice conversations to you know two or three hours in when the heavy drinking really starts to then that's was my cue to go so that was that was big but also preparation um i know the first couple of places i went to i didn't bring anything so it's like well what do you have well i have you know club soda i have you know, something bland or Coke or orange soda.
3: You're the dude walking around the party with a glass of tap water or maybe some milk.
0: Right, you know, and oh, don't put a straw in there because they don't know there's no alcohol in there. That type. That was me, you know, lots of lime in there. It looked like a gin and tonic or something. But, you know, as people around me started to become aware that I wasn't drinking anymore, it became easier for me and, and through talking to other people, for me, the N.A. beers were not a problem, and there's a lot of gr- much better ones out there than they used to be. That was definitely something that was helpful to me. Uh, I think a lot of times you go to a party or a gathering, you just want something in your hand, you know, whether it's you know whatever the habit is. Uh, so that for me was was helpful, but. It's certainly one of those things. once you go through a couple of events like that and you're and you do have a plan and you do set those boundaries, they become much more enjoyable because and and you know each one that you do, it becomes a little bit easier, a little bit
3: easier, and a little bit easier for sure. I think there's a natural evolution that happens as as we attend these events, you know, the first couple that I went to was pretty short-lived. i wasn't I wasn't there very long. And I left same thing. I left as soon as I got like a little uncomfortable, which which didn't take very long. and And that's okay. but we're we're building sober muscles, and we we learn to make ourselves accountable to people that we can trust that are going to be there. We learn, some of these techniques, like keeping a drink in your hand, coming with your own, with your own drink. If it's a, NA a beer, if that's your jam or, or, you know, we went to uh we went to a campsite the other day. We were going to be there for like three hours. I brought a six pack of sparkling water and my wife just kind of chuckled. She's like, old habits die hard. And I was like, I need, I need something. <laughs> I need something. And I, yeah. I, knew, I knew I wasn't going to be pressured to drink, but I didn't want to just drink a bottle of water. I wanted something good. And yeah and we can grow and and also we we also start to learn which which situations we want to be in and which ones we don't want to be in yeah and we grow in that way in that way as well and it's mm-hmm. it's okay to let go of some of that stuff if if that's where we're at yeah
0: no i i couldn't agree more i mean letting go of certain situations you know, I, I I don't have a problem going out with people if they want to meet out at a bar for drinks or something like that. But my move these days seems to be stay for an hour, hour and a half. Usually most of the good conversation that's going to happen if you're with people that are drinking happens in that first 60 or 90 minutes. So I don't have a problem doing that. And then just setting the boundaries. And, and you know, most of the people in my life know that I don't drink and they don't care. Like I really thought they would care a lot more, but you know, in the beginning there, the reaction is, Oh, wow. You know, you really didn't have a problem. Why did you stop? And I said, well, for my own reasons, it's just better for me. And, you know, I I certainly try not to preach to anyone. Yeah. Setting those boundaries was huge
3: for sure. Kevin, let's talk a little bit. If you, if you, if you're willing to, um, how drinking impacted your, your relationships with your, your family, friends, work, spouse, and, and what that what that might look like, what those relationships might look like now?
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, my parents were, were never drinkers, so really my relationship with them wasn't changed too much. Although when I was a kid, I think I drove them a little bit crazy with it. I, I would say with my family, it certainly did have an effect on my first marriage because it left me less patient. I found that when I was drinking, I would be less patient, you know, not abusive or anything like that, but just not taking the time to build those relationships and and to keep them strong. You know, sometimes when you feel impatient or you feel anxious, you don't give the people in your life the amount of time that you should. Drinking not only takes up a lot of your money and your health, but it takes up a lot of your time, the mental bandwidth. I think now, and thankfully, you know, I have great relationship with my sons and my parents and, and my ex-wife, and I've been able to rebuild a lot of that. So it's not something I'm very, very blessed that it never put things in such a position where you couldn't repair. And, And I'm very grateful. And, you know, just having conversations now with those important people in my life is just, it's huge. Um, I really appreciate them so much more than I did ever. I
3: ever have. And I, and I think the feeling's probably mutual. As soon as you said, impatient, anxious, that it just brought me right back. And I, I think you hit the nail. I think you hit the nail on the head, dude.
0: Yeah. I mean, same thing goes for work. I mean, I, I own a business that we have 15 employees. And I remember I used to just look at them more as I was always good to them. Don't get me wrong. But I looked at them as a means to an end, like, hey, they fulfill a role in my company. They do their job. I pay them well. And I've noticed for sure the last year or so that I'm really developing relationships with the people that I work with, you know, asking them about their children, sending a gift when someone has a baby, you know, going that extra mile. You know, I had somebody text me, one of the guys that works for me. He says, why do you love me so much? Oh, You know, and. Um, it meant a lot that somebody that I know less than a year and he sees that, you know, because I take a genuine interest much more so than I ever have in in helping people that are around me that are good people.
3: I love that, man. And that's the thing is, is we, I don't think we see it when we're in it, but alcohol just, it takes us out of that moment. It takes us out of the moment. It takes away our ability to be able to be present for others, whether it's families or, or, you know, an employee or a coworker. What a gift. What a gift to be able to to come back, to have the opportunity to to be present and show up for others. That's that's amazing.
0: Yeah. No, I, I remember when I used to go home to New York and, and I would stay at my mom and dad's. And that usually was a place for me to sleep. You know, hey, have a little bit of coffee in the morning and out the door. And, you know, uh, close to two years ago when I stopped drinking, I remember one of the first nights that I was there and I'm like, well, I guess I'm not going to go out. So I actually sat in the kitchen and had a two hour conversation with my dad and it was just mind blowing to me, you know, it was just, it was great. Made me upset at the time because I said, what have I been doing all these years? But I'm just thankful that, you know, better late than never.
3: What a gift. And Kevin, I've got one more question for you before we get to the rapid fire round. I'd like to know what your recovery looks like now. What does your recovery portfolio consist of? Maybe walk us through a, a sample day of your recovery
0: sure i'm an early riser um i
3: always have been
0: so i'm up early i definitely carve out at least 90 minutes in the morning pretty much every single day Uh, i read i uh, usually meditate a little bit and i journal i write so for me if i win the morning you know the chance of me having a good solid day are much much higher but I work a lot, so after that, I, I spend some time with the dogs in the morning. Go to work. I usually work a pretty long day, and then just kind of chill at night. Go out with some friends, and uh, I, I do take some a decent. I travel quite a bit to New York to see my kids, and they come down to see me. Well, they're not kids there; you know, young adults at this point. But um, that would be uh, for me getting off the day uh, early with a good start is is just huge. I definitely. Check in with Cafe Ari quite a bit. Um, that has been really a big part of of what is keeping me
3: connected uh, to the community, which helps. I love it, and it's it seems it seems like no matter what method it is, that connection is definitely a common theme with people in recovery. Yep, for sure. Okay, and here we are. We've landed. Kevin, at the the rapid fire round in 30 to 60 seconds. If you could answer these questions, we've all heard of the aha moment. What was your oh shit moment indicating that you can't really control your drinking? Well,
0: I guess I'll have to rely back on what I said before, Um, you know, driving home from a brew pub and uh, just hitting that rumble strip that vibrated my truck and that vibrated in my brain. I said, what am I doing? So that was the oh shit and time to change course moment. What
3: is your plan in sobriety moving forward?
0: My plan is to keep doing what I'm doing. You know, it's Odette has said it many times on a podcast, it's not a a linear uh, trip. And I'm definitely finding that out. She calls them dip days and I have plenty of those. But my plan is to keep connected. Uh, I've now, you know, starting with, you know, the in-person meetups, For me has really really been just huge huge you know for me getting on the zoom chats once in a while continuing to offer words of encouragement and and i learn a lot there's a lot of new people now in the community this is definitely
3: a movement so
0: staying connected with that is huge for me
3: uh in regards to sobriety what's the best advice you've ever received probably to be kind to yourself
0: I, I think on the podcast last week or the week prior, Odette had Trisha Lewis on, and I don't know if she said it or she attributed it to someone else, but she said, look at yourself like your dogs look at you. You know, I think we, in early days of, of day ones, we beat ourselves up so much and we're so disappointed in ourselves and we loathe ourselves for slipping up and I would say just be kind to yourself. Once you get on that journey, it's going to take a lot of wacky turns and dips and bumps. But once you're on the journey and you're doing the
3: work, it's you'll get there. Just be kind to yourself in the meantime. That's great, man. Extend that grace to yourself that you would to someone else. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. What parting piece of guidance can you give to our listeners who are in recovery or thinking about getting sober?
0: You, you've got to want
3: to you
0: got to want to do it. I mean, I know that sounds basic, but you have to do it for yourself. Figure out your why. And yes, I did do it for my kids. I did it for many reasons, but keep digging into why do you want this? Because if it's just to say that you quit drinking or you did it for your wife or your husband or something like that, that's great, but there's gotta be more to it. There's gotta be, you know, I go back to, you're not giving something up. You're getting so much more in return. It's just amazing.
3: That's beautiful, man. It, it is, it's a gift. It truly is a gift. And if we can get to the place where we can embrace that, it it just creates such a shift in our energy and our, our ability to keep driving forward. That's mm-hmm. a, That's excellent. Thank you so much. And I've got one last question for you kevin i'd like to know your best you might need to ditch the booze if line
0: oh boy i i could go a, a few different ways with this and i've heard a lot of funny ones unfortunately mine's not going to be funny but it, it means a lot to me you know my sons are everything to me uh they're wonderful human beings they're great kids they make me proud i knew it was time to say adios when I was doing things that could either rupture or end my relationship with them. You know, the boost just had to go. That's it. So if you're doing something that could harm the worst, the, the most wonderful relationships in your life that you have, it's time to say goodbye.
3: I'm really, really glad that you caught that. And I know that your kids, I know that your kids are glad because you're, uh, you're you're an amazing dude and and they're lucky to have you. And I'm glad that you're in a place where where that relationship is thriving with them. Uh, That's awesome. Well, Kevin, thank you again. Thank you so much for your time. This was great. This time freaking flew by. (laughs) It did. Thank you so much. And uh, I'll talk to you soon, brother. I love you.
0: I love you too, Chris. Thanks again. Talk to you soon.
3: Recovery elevator. That's all for today's interview. Thanks again to Kevin for being my first guest. I really appreciate it. I wanted to touch on something that was mentioned in the interview. When asked about his early sobriety, Kevin mentioned the scale going up. This hits home with me and it is an area that I continue to work on. Kevin and I talked a little after recording about some of the expectations that we place on ourselves. It's common for us to put down alcohol and then start to look at other things that might need to change. We hear all the time, I've quit drinking, now I'm going to start marathon training, eliminate sugar, I'm going to meditate two hours a day, start three new businesses, go paleo, adopt 15 shelter dogs start growing my own nectarines, and build a better mousetrap. None of these things are inherently bad. They're all actually pretty great, but we need to be patient. Eliminating alcohol is a massive step in your self-improvement. I'm fully on board for personal responsibility, being healthy, and achieving your goals, but we've got to be kind to ourselves. No matter how long you've been on the alcohol-free path, I want to encourage you to manage your expectations. You're doing a great job, but be patient. Let the work do its work. If something has to take a back seat while we remove the thing that's killing us, that's okay. Spend some time on positive affirmations and gratitude. And like Kevin said, be kind to yourself. Love yourself. You are doing amazing things. One last thing before we go, I want to thank you all for having me. I started listening to this podcast right after I quit drinking, and I'm incredibly grateful and humbled to have the opportunity to be doing interviews. In the past almost four years, I've related to the guest on this show. I've latched onto the stories I've heard here and discovered that there is another way. As I listened, I learned. And as I learned, I healed. To all the previous guests, to all the listeners, and to my family in Cafe RE, thank you. Thank you so much for being here. If you'd like to reach out, please feel free to hit me up at Chris. That's K-R-I-S at recoveryelevator.com. Recovery elevator. We took the elevator down. We've got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. I love you.